Hello and welcome to Rear View, the show where we get to chat to the fascinating people who make up the motoring universe, learning how they got to where they are today. Hello, I'm Andrew and this is episode 8. For this show, I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by Robin Hales. Without further ado, I shall move on to our conversation where he introduces himself much better than I am able to. Welcome to my guest, Robin Hales. Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, Could you uh, do the honour of introducing yourself to the listener, please, Robin? Certainly. Um, Obviously, my name's Robin Hales, as you just said. Uh, I'm the product PR manager for Hyundai Motor UK. And what is a product manager for people, Uh, for silly people? And just, I mean, I know it's going to be a wild stretch for you here, but for ignorant people like me. um, (laughs) It's a, well, it's it's an interesting question. Um, I think because you've got product manager and product PR manager. So I'm going to get all up to you now. So they're two very different roles, but I have done both. Mm -hmm. Um, My current role as product PR manager um, is more, along the lines of dealing with mainly the automotive media um, in terms of promoting our products, so new model launches, um, just you know, talking to them about any um, issues you may have, so product recalls, um, not that we have any of that, of course, I should say service campaigns rather than recalls, um, anything like that, anything kind of the, the oily bits, I, I suppose, of the, uh, of the product lineup um, that we deal with, as opposed to more of kind of the lifestyle and brand PR, which is actually sits within, with another colleague of mine within the same team. Um, but basically, I suppose an easy way of saying it: anything you see relating to Hyundai in a car magazine or online is kind of pretty much I've had a hand in uh, dealing with, if you like. Okay, so does that uh, is 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 that typically in the industry a person with a more uh, technical stroke engineering background? Um, I, I think it's a 50-50 mix. I, I mean, I would, what I would say is I've not been doing the PR job um, for a huge length of time. I, I've been in the, the current position from about March this year. Actually, my first day of the job was at the Geneva Motor Show. Um, <laughs> but, but I've been with Hyundai for just coming out for 13 years now, um, but in a number of different roles, one of which is, is kind of more of the, the technical side, which is my background anyway. That's, that's what I went into um, after I left school. I, from what I understand of um, other manufacturers, it is a bit of a 50-50 split. You have got people that come from a more technical engineering side, but from the same manufacturer. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you've also got a, a large number of uh, PR, product PR managers who don't have any um, technical expertise, but obviously have a, a genuine interest in the cars. Yeah. Um, for me, it made, I, I find... I absolutely love my job. I think it's fantastic. Really, really do enjoy it. Um, And it's quite easy for me in the sense that I'm just talking to people about cars and I'm talking to people about quite geeky things um, because I'm a bit of a geek anyway. So it'll come quite easily. It's just like having a normal conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, But, but yeah, it's an interesting mix across the whole whole industry, I think. Okay, excellent. Um, Right, if we can focus uh, on you here and um, I, I say this every week so I really must do it at some point but uh, pretend there's music as we drift back in the mists of time <laughs> to when you were younger do you remember when you first started to be interested in cars and did anybody help you along with that interest I, I can remember roughly around the time because um, my, my dad has always been in the motor industry okay. um, but, but more from a dealer background um, and I remember as a as a kid, I'm trying to think where where I was living at the time. We moved when I was about five years old. But this is the the previous house that at, at lunchtime my dad would come home from work for his lunch, and I would run out at the, around the back of the house down to the driveway to see what car he brought home. And that's kind of one of the first memories I really have. So from from quite a young age, um, I've always had an interest in cars, um, and. Obviously, with a dad being in the trade, you tend to spend most of your life in and around cars. I spent the vast majority of my weekends up to the about the age of 13, 14, in and around car showrooms, workshops, and that. It was fantastic. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. And um, was there any, uh, at, at that age, do you do you recall if there was a particular aspect of cars that you like? Was it the look? Was it the oily bits? Was it the sound, the smell? <laughs> The, the, uh, perhaps everything fluids it, leaking <laughs> <laughs> clearly you know the type of cars my dad was involved in um I, it was everything really um which i know is, is a bit of a, kind of a get out way of answering it but 
even from at that age, sort of sitting sitting under the bonnet, saying, "What does this do, Dad? What does this do, Dad? What happens if I do this?" And then sitting in the car, pretending you're driving it, um, being thrown around on the back seat while your dad's driving down the road. It, it, was, it was all aspects of it, really. Um, even with my toy cars, kind of driving those, it wasn't anything. It, it wasn't kind of a, a love of sports cars or anything like that. It was everything about cars um, that I, I really used to. I really used to love. Um, I don't don't think I love them in the same way now because there are other, there are other things in my life that have taken over from that. Um, and not all, not all of those are flesh and bone. I should say. Um, but. Yeah, everything really. I just just loved being in and around cars. I love being driven in them. I love pretending to drive them. Um, sticking your head underneath the car when you're five, six years old is it, fantastic because it's just you're seeing all these bits that no one ever gets to see. Mm, yeah, yeah. So um, you say your dad's in the uh, was in the trade. Did he encourage you, or was it just a case of um, that was? Uh, it, it just because he was bringing them home, I was like, "Oh, great! You know, my son's interested in what I'm doing. That's that's fantastic." Or yeah, it, it, I mean, my this is going to be like kind of the, the psychiatric couch now. I think yes. there, just and lie back and let's talk about it. <laughs> um, it I, suppose, I mean, my parents have always been really easy going. <laughs> excuse me, excuse me, cough. Um, they've always been quite easy going. You kind of you make your own decisions and they'll support you through it. Um, I was quite fortunate that my dad, as I said, always bringing those cars home. It kind of nurtured my interest naturally. He didn't really need to um, to, to push it along that, anything along those lines. What the the interesting point came that when I was um, sixteen, I, I went to quite. I, I live in High Wycombe. Went to one of the grammar schools here in High Wycombe, um, but I decided in a maths lesson learning trigonometry that there was absolutely no way I was ever going to use trigonometry anything I ever wanted to do in my entire life so being at school was a waste of time um, and I thought right I want to get out and I want to get into the motor trade so my dad helped me kind of getting the first uh, job within the trade because I, I wanted to do my apprenticeship I, I wanted to kind of the corny old phrase of following in your father's footsteps. He worked, started out as an apprentice in a workshop and worked his way through to being um, a director of a, a relatively large local company running five or six dealerships. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's, I suppose that's kind of what I wanted to do. Um, so he helped me out getting me an apprenticeship within the local group. Um, my, my year head at my grammar school was not happy that I was leaving the grammar school to go to become a car mechanic because uh, boys from his school did not do that. Mm. Um, but absolutely over the moon that I did um, because I, I, I learned a trade and I think it's quite a, an important thing to do at that age. Um, but yeah, so, so I did that, did my, my apprenticeship. Um, Dad supported me all through that. And then I hit the age of 18, discovered cars and motorcycles and it all just went rapidly downhill after that, really. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, you, you, you've mentioned cars. Well, what was your first car then? Or did you go uh, two-wheel first? I went two wheels first purely because it was a, a means of transport at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that then really developed into a love. Motorbikes are a real passion of mine. Um, and if anyone's got about two or three hours of their life they want to waste, just start a conversation with me about bikes and I'll sit there quite gladly all day long. Um, <laughs> but can we come, I have possibly got the dullest list of cars that I've owned with possibly one or two exceptions um, that I think you'll ever have of anyone on this show, and I'm quite embarrassed about it. I must, must admit. Oh, come on. You've, um, you've heard me talk to Alan. I mean, there's a, uh, did you know that know. one person could own that many Yaris's? Uh, believe me, a, a Yaris is almost a, uh, is a shining example of automotive nirvana compared to what I'm going to give you on my list, believe me. Okay, then. Um, here we go, then. Just to start off, and it goes downhill fairly rapidly. Um, my first car I had... Um, was a white Fiat Panda 850 registration A565 DCF. Um, I remember it clearly. It was it was white, but it was more filler than it was metal. Um, <laughs> it, it was a truly awful car. Um, but it's one of those things. It's your first car, so you do kind of bond with it. Um, I, I'm actually surprised at how many people do remember the registration of their first cars. I've got a really bad habit. I can remember the registration of almost everything four and two wheeled I've ever owned. Um, I, I, I struggle remembering people's birthdays, um, 
particularly particularly the other half who sat in the other room. Um, if, okay. if it wasn't she, for she, a... she probably won't hear this, but, <laughs> so you'll be safe. If or if she Outlook. does hear it, it will then be very clearly put on the calendar for you. Uh, if it wasn't for Outlook calendars now, believe me, I'd, I'd be in deep, deep trouble. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a, it's just, there are a lot of people in the industry that seem to have the ability to remember things like that. It, it's strange. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so well, I mean, to, let's be fair. The, uh, an original panda—that's quite yep. an impressive start. Okay, you you said it wasn't a very good car. An impressive start. That that is an impressive <laughs> start. I am I am I'm very I I love the look of those. I've never driven one, um, but I I think they're a, a fab looking car. So what was next? A Golf Mark One One Liter. Um, that refused to idle under any circumstances. Um, You know when you hear these people go on about how they've mastered left foot braking, um, (laughs) and it's always in some kind of really fancy open-top rear-wheel drive sports car. Mm. I I learned left foot braking because it was the only way that I could come up to a junction to keep my car running. It would knock it into neutral (laughs) with kind of your foot hovering on the clutch at the same time trying to brake and keep the revs at at the right kind of level. Um, so I'm, I'm a master at that, but not through a way that I'm particularly proud about. Um, then, <laughs> so then how I long did you dis- keep that? How long did you heel toe left foot brake <laughs> for about seven months? God, that's um, that's commitment. It, it wasn't bad, but then it, then it went, and I had a, a run of uh, motorcycles for quite a while uh, before I ventured back into the world. And my ne- this is a relatively interesting one, which was my Sierra Two Liter that I had. Um, I, I was only about eighteen. It was a horrific amount to insure, um, but at the time, my uh, a friend of mine's dad was doing short circuit oval racing. Um, with I, I don't know how familiar you are with it, but it was a, a class called Lightning Rods, which is basically old Sierras running a two-litre Pinto engine. So I had access to some quite interesting parts. Um, so it, it looked a standard two-litre, but all uprated carbs and cams and all sorts. It was fantastic, and subsequently blew it up at least twice, if I recall correctly. <laughs> Um, it's called experimentation. Yeah, uh, that, it, that actually having flashbacks now. That that car got horrifically vandalised in a car park in Bracknell, um, which is where it, it met its end. We scrapped it after that. Took the engine out of it and scrapped it. Um, which then came possibly the lowest point in my automotive life, which was a Maestro one point three. And I know that there's a there's a real love for old British cars amongst the uh, the British motoring press, which having had one, I can't understand. Um, it was horrible. It was a beige, off white with a brown velour interior. It was just oh. awful. Was, there, there's nothing positive to say about this car whatsoever. Um, I. I had a, the first time I took it down a motorway. I think I lost both indicator lenses. Um, oh, nice. uh, about. 75 miles out awful car hated it absolutely detested it so how long did you put up with that then uh, <laughs> about four months I tend not to own stuff very long um, <laughs> I, it's quite a high churn at the moment but yeah I ended up on its side in a ditch in Burnham Beaches um, a horrific lift off oversteer moment with a thing which it didn't really like <laughs> entirely my own fault was driving like a complete idiot um, but yeah that, that, that went quickly uh, to be followed by a Rover 214, um, which I suppose is another classic oh, no. British <laughs> motoring press. Um, which actually, I tell you, I, I didn't really own that. That was a company car because I'd gone off into a job where I actually had a, a company car. Um, I wouldn't say it was a perk being a Rover 214. For some reason, I had a horrific appetite for front brake pads, and I don't quite know why. Um, but I, ba- I bananaed that car by launching it off a humpback bridge. We were, me and some friends have been out go-karting. And you know the thing when you come out of go-karting and you get in your car and the steering in your car suddenly feels ridiculously light because all of a sudden mm. you've got power assistance back. <laughs> um, we, were, we were coming back through some lanes at the other side of, uh, of Aylesbury. Um, and I'd recalled going over this bridge on the way there and coming back, I sort of thought, let's see if we can get a little bit of air just, as, just off the crest of the hill. Uh, and, yeah, we got a bit more air than I anticipated. Didn't think anything was wrong until one of my mates went to get out of the car went to drop him off at his house, and the door kind of went clunk and dropped dropped about three inches off the hinges um, as he opened the door. Ah. So that, that was quickly got rid of. Um, to be followed by an old Escort 1.6, little Mark Six Golf uh, Mark Six Escort. Uh, which, that was a nice little car actually. It was quite pleasant. 
um, that are boringly reliable and had, had no issues with it at all. Um, then so, so, you, um, so what we can glean very quickly, in case anyone who uh, is maybe <laughs> at your employer now can say that you've quickly and uh, immediately matured as a as a driver yes. of any company vehicles that you're in charge very of. Very much so. Very much so. <laughs> um, touch wood, I haven't had an accident for for some time, and I've got a clean license at the moment as well. And I think I'm the only member of my of the PR team with a clean license at the minute, actually. So I'm quite proud of that. <laughs> okay. Um, so you've you how long did you have the um, boring and reliable and did everything it needed to escort? Not long. I think that was all about five or six months. I think it wasn't a it wasn't a huge period of time. It, it was this um, because of job change, or yeah, this, this was this was a job change. Oh, okay. So I, I I left uh, where I was at the time and got had to to purchase. I had to purchase my own car very quickly, um, which is gonna. The only reason why I say it is that I want to try and justify the car that I'm gonna do oh, next. Um, it was very cheap. Okay, it was on a very cheap PCP deal, okay. and it was a very very cheap deposit. Um, and it was a Saxo 1.1 East Coast um, with different colour seatbelts, which was... Uh, ah, was, when uh, special editions were special editions. That's it. It was the classic. <laughs> um, this was 1.1 V429 ETF. Um, hey, I remember that registration as well. <laughs> so if anyone's driving that car at the moment, I'm really sorry. Um, whatever the mileage says on the speedo may or, not, may or may not be correct. Uh, <laughs> Obviously, you uh, your ten pence per mile over your uh, PCP allowance. The speedo may or may not have uh, met with some disconnecting, shall we say? <laughs> not rolling the mileage back because that's illegal. But sometimes it did work. Sometimes it didn't work. Mm. <laughs> um, after that, um, I had a Saxo VTR. So cause well, that sounds a, PC. a bit fun. Yeah, a bit tasty. It was, uh, it was interesting. Um, I really, really loved that car. Uh, it, it, it was. Uh, I want to say home was a special place in my heart because that sounds a bit, a bit sad. But it's it okay. Was, You're but, in the right but, corner of the internet to say these things. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. You're amongst it friends. Was, <laughs> it was the first car that I've ever brought brand new. That I went into the showroom and I picked exactly what I wanted. It was the color I wanted. It was the spec. It was was just right. Well, that's going to be um, special even before you get in it. Then at yeah, that point, exactly. Whenever, whatever your first one of those is. Yeah, I hundred percent agree. I think your first, the first new car that you really want is always going to be always going to be special. And I think I actually had that a couple of years. Um, dun, dun, dun. Before it met with a God, my, my driving history just sounds terrible now because I smashed this one up as well. Um, but this was in in a wet weather going around Heathrow Airport. If you've ever driven around Heathrow Airport in the wet, those roads are lethal. Um, and, and it was a proper lift off oversteer straight into a barrier uh, moment. But um, but that got repaired, and then my girlfriend drove around in that for about six months before that that went back to its uh, its French maker. To be replaced by a Celica two liter, which that that was an interesting car. Hmm. Yes. Okay. That was, uh, yeah. Quite good fun. Um, and then I was I was tossing up whether I should tell you this or not because I ended up driving a Daewoo Matiz after two liter. Um, that was there, a, there are, you. Quite... You have to go through low moments to really appreciate the high. <laughs> The, the lowest moment with this one is I remember being viciously cut up on a roundabout uh, by two young girls in a micro. Um, I wound down the window, beat the horn, uh, may or may not have said something quite rude, at which they turned around and laughed at me um, and outpaced me off the roundabout. Uh, <laughs> at that moment, it was, yeah, I've got to get rid of this car. Um, and that's, I suppose, that's really been kind of the normal car i have had a couple of interesting cars um i had a couple of rover p6s and a rover p5 um for for a beef period that, that was good fun uh driving around in sort of old school v8s with absolutely no power assistance the steering and just getting the thing sideways when you didn't really mean to um <laughs> which that, seems to be a bit fun. of a theme that's developing here <clears throat> yeah although i didn't crash though so it's okay um <laughs> I think, but, but I think, fortunately for me, having been kind of in the trade and around the trade, whilst I've not necessarily owned too many interesting cars, you do get access to to have a go and have a play in some really interesting cars. Um, I mean, my other half, she actually doesn't work in the industry anymore, but she used to work for a Porsche dealership. 
Mm-hmm. So we had a go in quite a few things like Caymans, 911s, um, sort of through my apprenticeship, had a, a chance at driving things like Skylines, um, the, the old uh, Sunny GTIRs or Pulsars, as I think the, uh, the import's called, mm. 300ZXs, 200SXs, MR2s, Supras, things like that. It, so I've had quite a, had a good opportunity at driving some, some really interesting things. Um, really interesting cars. And obviously, yeah, Hyundai's. There's not many Hyundai's that I haven't driven. Um, but particularly the uh, the fuel cell. I've done quite a few miles in in our fuel cell car. I've done about eight nine thousand miles in one of those now. Okay. Um, which is interesting, but on a, a completely different side of the uh, of the industry. I think. Yeah. So um, as part of your role, then I would presume, uh, and I think you've just alluded to it there. You have to spend uh, a certain amount of time with the product, with the car, to then fully understand it. So when you are asked questions uh, by the automotive press or or anyone at all, then you are in a better. I would presume you're then in a better position to answer them. Def- definitely, I mean, I'm, I suppose the, the, the way my simplistic brain works is that you could. Put a an owner's handbook in front of me, and I'll read it from cover to cover and not absorb a single word. I think for me, the, I have to sit in a car, drive it, play with it, live with it for a few days, if not a week, um, and just kind of natural curiosity kicks in as to how can I get the sat nav to work without referring to the, to the owner's manual. Um, yeah. Not that anyone does that, of course, because I mean everyone picks up our owner's manual to read through it before they do anything. Um, but yeah, once you've lived with the car and experienced the car, then I think it puts you in a much better position to to talk about the car because you've got a lot more confidence. If someone asks you a question, you know, someone from Auto Car say rings you up and says, oh, "I'm having more, having this problem with a um, yeah, the, the the automatic lights on the car don't seem to come on." You're kind of like bang straight away. Well, have you done this? Have you, have you tried that? It, it gives you, it puts you in not a position of power, but it just gives you a lot more confidence because you've experienced it, you've lived with the product, and you, you've not just read it off a sheet of paper and, and hopefully got your facts right. Mm, yeah. So um, I would presume that um, being in your role, you would see cars quite early on in development. How early is it typical across the industry um, for? for uh, someone in your role to to be told about a product and then to be told where it is in the in the frankly astonishingly expensive and massive pipeline that is bringing a car yeah. to market well uh, i think we're quite an interesting company because we, we it doesn't take us very long in terms of having the initial idea to bring it to market i think our our whole process is is a lot faster than a lot of other companies <coughs> oh, excuse me um and from a, from a, a PR position, you you know about the car maybe a couple of years out. You'd, you'd have an idea that, that something's going to be coming out. But throughout the kind of the, the life cycle of the of the product, from a PR perspective, you might not actually see the car in the flesh um, until you do something along the lines of a, an early prototype drive. I mean, you'd have seen the reviews in the car mags anyway, mm. uh, where they go out and, and drive a, a cladded vehicle. That might be the first time you actually see the car in the flesh. Um, but other departments so again as I said earlier I used to work in our technical department I was in there for six years and you won't necessarily know how far a product is in terms of a couple of years away but you will be one of the first people to see it in the flesh because obviously you need to be trained on it you'll need to understand um, how the systems work you'll have an input into some of the very late kind of finessing of the product before it comes to market mm-hmm. Um uh, from that point on, again, you might not then see the car until it's actually in the dealerships because you've got all marketing, PR suddenly then take over because the, essentially the product is ready to go from a mechanical point of view and then you've got the sales and marketing aspect that they need to take over. Yeah. Um, but I think, again, being kind of naturally geeky and interested in cars, it's one of the, 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 the good things about my job because I know what's coming up and I know what we've got that, that is going to be interesting. What, you know, and then you could compare it to other manufacturers and say, okay, well, they've got that. We're going to have this. Um, so it, it's good for someone that likes to geek out on cars, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I can imagine. Sitting there quietly going, oh, just you wait. Just you wait and see. <laughs> <laughs> oh, when you can read those internet forums, they're a classic. <laughs> Um, something you mentioned then about, um, and this is 
not a Hyundai specific, but this is just a general question I have, and maybe you have the answer to this, and maybe you don't. But why do manufacturers allow these uh, exclusives in inverted commas? And I'm very sorry, everyone. I've just done air quotes. Um, <laughs> exclusive drives in prototype vehicles is that uh and i'm not trying to if if you can't answer this that's fair enough or if you don't want to answer that i understand that but is this to is this sort of a combination of letting people know there is a new product coming uh getting feedback from the uh the journalists in a roundabout way so that if something isn't working and you know, it, there's a fairly unanimous view on that tweaks can be made or uh, what's, what is the, what does the manufacturer get out of that? Cause they must be getting something out of it. I think if I being brutally honest with you, it's kind of more along the lines of creating the story and creating the interest in the car okay. um, before it comes to market. But there is still a, a part of, um, a feedback from from motoring journalists. So, since we we sorry to make it Hyundai specific, but we did something with the i30 a little while ago. The new i30 is coming out, uh, where we did a, a cloudy drive, and the whole focus was on the ride and handling. Okay, because it's an because it's an area we we traditionally um, I want to say get marked down on, but it's always something that comes up in, in any of our reviews that we have for our cars. And so it is an area that we're really working quite hard for not just the UK, but the whole of Europe. So it was a feature very much focused on that. Um, and it wasn't so much on the engine, certainly not styling or interior, because they couldn't see it because it was all cladded. Mm. Uh, and we had, some, we had some good feedback on that. Um, had we had some critical feedback, then it was a, an early stage that then it would have triggered further conversations, I think. So, okay, right, we've, we've been marked down on X, Y, Z. We've had this critiqued, if, if you like. What can we do about it? Let's go back. Can we re-engineer suspension settings, shock absorber settings, et cetera? So, that, so there is a an element of the uh, review and input at that point. But if I'm honest, the, the large chunk of it is the fact that we're generating a story okay. um, and want to want to talk to people about the car and, and not just constantly sort of do artist impressions of this, a sneak preview of that, because it's the kind of thing that everyone sees and it doesn't really make the car stand out, it doesn't make it any different. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that's understandable. I mean, because the, the, the job of uh, PR and marketing is to... Is to say, is to explain the message, explain the story. Mm. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I I can understand that. Then it's um, sometimes I may have voiced my frustration <laughs> as a consumer of uh, <clears throat> automotive uh, journalism uh, at seeing them because sometimes it sometimes as a reader it just feels uh, that maybe the magazine's doing a bit of filler because so much could change at that point. I understand, I mean, what you've told me is what I sort of suspected was happening. Mm. Uh, and, it, and it's good to know I was in the right, right remotely right ballpark there. So that's, that's very pleasing to my ego. <laughs> <laughs> but it, sometimes because, I mean, there's been certain cars that have come out recently that the story started so long ago. Yeah, yeah. That it uh, was started, uh, it got sort of, you know, it was six months before anything was revealed at the motor show. And you're like, oh, come on, please just get to the point almost. Mm. But it, so it is a fine line that, um, that PR and marketing have to balance uh, to, to keep our interest, to keep us informed and to still, you know, it, it's obviously got to be, it's not, you know, if you can get something out of it, as you said, then there was a specific thing you guys wanted to learn about. Then, you know, it needs to be far enough out that changes can still be made, and it yeah. and it doesn't mess up going into production. So, okay, right, no, thank you for that. Sorry, I, I, I slightly digressed there, but it was uh, just something that had cropped up recently. No, I, I, I think it's a valid point, and, and I read car magazines, and I know exactly what you mean. I kind of look at it, and you kind of think, oh god, another scoop. You know, it's the same car. It's just it's a slightly rehashed photo of the same thing. It's yeah, it's a it's a difficult one because so many people are doing it. That you almost kind of you you're forced into doing 
the same thing. Otherwise, you completely lose your share of voice within the market. But I, I know exactly what you mean. And it is something we're always really conscious about, is making sure that it's not just the same thing appearing time in, time out. There has to be a new angle on it for us to, to want to do it. Mm. Well, that actually brings up a bit of an interesting point and um, something I'd... Uh be interested to hear from someone on the other side because and rear view up to now we've uh, had people who are on uh, the content production side of things mm. um, so the journalists and the writers but from the manufacturer's point of view how uh, there's well okay there are so many outlets whether it's print uh, written online video online audio online funnily enough uh, um h- how do you how are you able to um sit down and say right first of all here are the groups of people we would like to discuss this with so there will be um you've obviously got motoring journalists and writers mm. but we see more and more uh with uh I don't want to say lifestyle bloggers, but from from different niche areas, people now being um, car manufacturers talking to these these different areas. I mean, they've always done it, but it's it's very easy to see it now. You've got parenting bloggers, uh, you've got lifestyle bloggers, that sort of thing. And I keep saying bloggers, but I mean online content producers. Yeah, no, it's, it's how how. Do, does it depend on the product? Does it depend in the life cycle of the product? Uh, and I'm th- realise I am throwing so many questions at you here. I hope you're making no, a list. It's a, it, it's, it's a subject we talk about in the office quite often. Um, in, in fact, today I've been approached, we've been tasked with um, a, a an item for a story. Mm. And, and I know for well that this story will appeal to the traditional automotive media it's not going to appeal in the slightest to the likes of Mumsnet mm. or the, 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 an, an online. Oh, you've mentioned um, them group. quick. We must. <laughs> I must bow down to the altar. <laughs> the all-powerful Mumsnet. <laughs> but I mean, and that's the kind of thing. But then, not that we have got anything like it in the market. But if we had kind of a seven-seat, um, real family-friendly, multi-purpose vehicle, I mean, we used to have something like that in the market. The old Trage. If we had something like that now. Uh, and we were going to do uh, not so much a, a, a launch, but maybe a drive story. Mm. Then it'd be the kind of thing where loading the car up with five car seats and a roof box on the top called the beach gear, that it would be far more relevant to that type of um, community than it would be the likes of your auto car, your auto express, your car magazine. Mm. Um, so I think it's, it's definitely for us always trying to find a new angle on things for our product but then making sure you approach the right type of of organization and i think one of the the interesting things at the moment is that the traditional automotive media is that's that's a very very important side for for the pr departments to talk to but the other side of 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 automotiveness in 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 regards to the online communities um the lifestyle bloggers tech magazines are a very quickly growing side of it that we cannot ignore that because there's a lot of people who aren't remotely interested in the car industry they get in the car and it, it drives them to work it drives them home from work it takes them to you know, shopping at the weekend it needs to be reliable and they're not actually that bothered about what it handles like does it understeer in the wet does it oversteer in the wet they don't care they just want to get in the car and drive it so we need to make sure we appeal to those people as well we get them involved um for us it's always been a bit of a challenge the, the biggest problem we've always had is just getting people in the car once you get people in the car then the car sells itself it's a strong enough product to do that but it's always for us the, the challenge has been the, the the challenge of getting people into the brand rather than the car once you get people in the car they say job is done but it's how you get people to become aware um of, of the high end brand and it is something that it is improving year on year and becoming much easier but at the same time you're still trying to identify the right market for the particular type of story or the particular article that you want to do yeah because i I it's it's interesting you say that and that that sort of fits with what i've seen um say for example with parenting bloggers i've seen an increasing number of them 
being uh, loaned vehicles for weekends or for for trips away on holiday for a week here or there. Um, and it's interesting reading those uh, articles, particularly, particularly if it's written well, that's, that's, but that's a different topic mm. for a subject for another time, because you get to actually see, because we in the automotive, uh, in this automotive corner of the internet, we're very, very niche. Yeah, we're very very small. Um, you know, Top Gear, old new Top Gear, got lots of people watching it because it was an entertainment show that happened to use cars. Yeah, um, old old Top Gear died because that for for too many people that wasn't entertaining. So it's it's a similar sort of thing that it's it's interesting to read when uh, a parenting blogger does get a, a vehicle for some time to actually see what is it that matters to them what is it about a car that they really really hits home and it is it is things that you know we or a lot of people go you know how fast is it north to 60 you know what's it like going around the corners you know, yeah. can, can I can I get the tyres? They're not mm -hmm. the, obviously there is no interest to them whatsoever. But the fact that it's got uh, USB uh, or charging points in the back of the car is a godsend because that means the kids are quiet on a holiday trip. That's it. You know, it's, uh, it'd be something like that rather than you know, or how big is the boot? How it will not so much how big is the boot, but how is it easy is it to get stuff into yeah. the boot? And we sometimes forget that in this corner, I think. And we're all and about the, oh, well, it was rattling over. You know, we when we pushed it hard, it sort of did this. Most people, most of the time, will never do that. And that's the thing. And when you, you're a parent, I'm a parent, it's yeah, analysing a car for, for tyre noise and, and wind noise is okay. But when you've got wind the bobbin up playing at 95 decibels <laughs> in the car to keep your screaming three-year-old quiet in the back, it's it, all of a sudden your tyre noise and road noise, there's nothing coming into it. And, and exactly as you said there, it's how's my nav system? Is that good? Is that going to get me to the air? I need to go quickly to, to go and change a nappy or whatever glorious thing you get to do as a parent. Mm. Um, it, it, How it, easily it can I hose the back. the back out? After, exactly. After exactly. God knows what they've eaten has been and, <laughs> secreted. Yeah, when, when, when Alan gives you jibes on the show about curry hooks and things like that, I always I bite my lip on that because curry hooks are bloody important to me. The amount of things I dangle off the hooks in the back of my car. Mm. Um, because if I didn't, it would just like some war zone in the back. There'd be stuff, coats and everything strewn everywhere. Um, <laughs> and it is. And, and I think it's those silly little things that can make a customer decide to buy a car or not yeah and so exactly as you said all of a sudden you give it to this person who's going to do a real world and i mean real real world evaluation of this car um not just in terms of how it performs because as long as it gets up to 70 mile an hour quickly as long as it delivers decent fuel consumption as long as it's quiet and refined they're happy it doesn't have to yeah. be the industry leading in those areas but as long as it does it well that's okay it's far more important of how it performs as a as a part of the family unit, if you like. Well, to a lot of people, uh, and this upsets me all the time when I think about it, but to a lot of people, a, a car is a white good. It is a tool. Mm. Um, it is they they get in their car to get somewhere to do something. It is not very. There's only a small number of us that jump in a car and go. You know what? I'm just going to go for a drive. Mm. I just fancy going for a bit of a poodle about and let's see where I go. There's very there's a limited number of people who do that because, you know, we've got hectic lives, we've, we've got other interests, you know, yeah. that's the thing. So, yes, if you can get into a car and it does not make your life harder than it is already or more than it needs to be, then that's a win. Exactly for for the vast majority of people in this country. So, mm. oh, well, no, thank you for that because because that, that's something I've noticed and I have seen um, some comments made. I mean, there's it 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 also to me depends on um, who who has the vehicle has is uh, selected in a way that will give a fair representation um, to what what. How appropriate it is for that person? Because, like I said, you know, I, we've all read, listened, watched, poor, uh, and it's not necessarily the um, it's not necessarily the output 
is poor, but it is the quality of the content. You know, people can have, a, you know, they don't have to have the latest camera to film something well, as long as the con- content is good, that the, what they are saying is actually important and interesting. Or, or equally, if they write it, it, if it is good writing, the the fact their website doesn't look as though they've spent £10,000 on it is not the relevant thing. You're right. And I think for us, certainly, it's a case of if, if, if we lend a car to someone and it performs badly, it performs badly, we, we can't alter that. And it wouldn't be right for us to, to aim the review in a way where we could avoid poor criticism. As much as we'd like to, it's just not the done thing. Um, but what we will try and do is make sure that we've got that whoever is, is – is reviewing the car is, is the right audience, as you, as you said there. You know, you, you wouldn't lend a, um, a a van or something to Evo magazine because it's not that's not the right audience. That's not what you're trying to achieve. Yeah. Um, if, having said that, if they wanted one, we'd probably lend them one anyway. But um, <laughs> it's yeah, it, it, you can't. We we wouldn't ever want to try and tailor a a, a reviewer's opinion um, of how fundamentally good a product is, but we would hope they would deliver relevant information to that particular audience of, of their publication. Yeah, because I, I remember there was one particular one that stood out to me um, was, I think she was a beauty or lifestyle um, blogger, and she was loaned a Fiat 500, and she couldn't actually drive which was quite <laughs> quite a hurdle to get over. Yes, However, this one. the rest of it was written really well yeah. and put quite a few of us in the automotive corner to shame. But she was up front straight away, said, look, I, don't, I can't drive. However, yeah. and then produced a very good article. But again, it's... It's also a, a mix of brand awareness and, and letting people know as well. I mean, in that one, in that instance, you know, she had, I can't remember how many followers or subscribers or whatever it is she had, but there was a vast number. So it was uh, worthwhile on another front, uh, which obviously comes into equations from uh, manufacturers, which is, are we going to reach many people? It's, it's great that this is done well, but are we actually going to reach many people? You know, and that that's got to be a and that that's a tricky one to judge. It is. It is very tricky. Um, <laughs> excuse me. And, and that's the thing, I suppose. With when you're looking at the traditional press um, or print, it's very easy. You, you know, readership figures. You can have a, a good idea. With the online, that's not so easy. So, for example, you guys, um, it's how do you evaluate the worth of, of lending you a car, inviting you along to, to launches? And you can look at, you can kind of start to make a bit of a call when you start looking at listening figures. Hmm. But that only works once you've built up a really good audience. It's it's trying to identify the ones that you want to become involved with um, at an early enough point. So uh, we'll be quite honest, we had a conversation about you guys and it was kind of like, should we, shouldn't we, or don't know. For me, it was quite easy because it was, well, I listen to it. If I listen to it, other people have got to listen to it. So to let's get involved. And, and we do the same thing with, with Gareth Jones. Um, I've listened to him for years and years and years. And it's for someone who doesn't necessarily listen or kind of understand the, the, the dark world of the geeky side of, of the motoring um online community like that would we wouldn't even register you kind of be like well there's no advertising opportunity there's no this there's no that but it's kind of like well actually they have a very very big audience mm. of influential listeners they have an audience of um the people who will be the blokes sat on the stall down the end of the bar who people will go to to ask their opinion and if you can start to get into into those people's minds then it's the, it makes the, the the battle and the struggle a whole world easier. Yeah, I, I mean, if if we talk about a podcast in which we are at the minute, it is very tricky um, because it is uh, it, we're beholden to iTunes, which is the the the, the master directory of podcasts at the moment. They are the big daddy, um, significantly bigger than anything else, uh, and. There isn't. They don't produce stats in a traditional uh, website way. Mm. You only get sort of sort of hints and ideas of it 
However, um, we... I'm just going to blow our own trumpet here at the minute. But we are continuing to grow every month. We are increasing listeners. Um, We've got this new show as well. And, uh, you know, it's occasionally we get near about to the likes of Gareth Jones, who, you know, there's... there's, He almost owns... UK automotive iTunes <laughs> charts, uh, and and there's good reason. I mean, one of them yeah. is he's been doing it for eleven, twelve years, and the other one is that it's good stuff that people enjoy. Well, that's the thing, and it, it's um, I'm, I'm sure you wouldn't mind me saying it, but he's almost a, it, almost like kind of like the new Top Gear of of podcasting, mm. whereas you guys are more kind of the old Top Gear. There's two. Yeah, I enjoy both, but they're two very different things. And it's you are kind of a lot more serious. Um, you know, you, you delve into the murky world of SMMT figures for a start. Um, whereas well, Gareth does favourite time, time of the time. month, that is. <laughs> uh, but whereas Gareth will do more kind of more uh, amusing things. I mean, yeah. he, obviously yeah. his, his review, I should imagine everyone's probably heard his review he did of the, the Ionic launch we went on to, um, where it's kind of spread over to almost three podcast reviews and um, one of which is just having a good time with, with sue baker driving around they're talking about whales and they hardly say two words about the car <laughs> but that's that but then that's the type of thing he does um and, and we know it's still it's still valuable because it is still creating um awareness of that car in that particular audience yeah and then obviously you guys go and review it and it's a lot more um William Woodard, Woodardish, uh, in the sense that you're giving real, real kind of important feedback as to how you experienced the car, what did you think, how did it perform in real world terms. Mm. Um, uh, so both are very different, but they're both just as valuable in their own right. Yeah, yeah. No, um, I, I, well, I listen to, uh, I listen to Gareth Jones. I listen to Smooth Traffic or another um, automotive podcast. They started just before us uh, mm. last year, and. Um, the more podcasts out there, the merrier as far as I'm concerned, because it's something I want to listen to, which is the whole reason Alan and I got together and started the, the Merchant Podcast. Um, but, you know, we, I think we've all got, we all look at it from a different perspective. So we're not, it's not like we're competing against each other or anything, yeah. which is, which is nice because we, we all seem to happily say nice things about each other. So. I think that's the thing. I mean, from a manufacturer, <laughs> from a car manufacturer point of view, that's exactly what we want. We don't, we, we don't want another group of people all producing the same thing, um, because then it just gives us the the job of okay, well, who are we going to give this scoop to first? It, it's that it's that difficult one for us. Whereas if you've got people all doing very different things, it makes the whole the whole world much much easier because you know again who you can approach with this product. Who, what is this going to be interesting for? Are their audience going to be interested in this or do we go to the other side? Mm. Right. Sorry. Now I've, I've seemed to have spoken about uh, the Motion Podcast rather a lot there, and that wasn't the point of this. This was That's a good show. Carry on. No, thank you. Um, <laughs> you said you said uh, we're going back to your uh, your employment history and stuff. And you said mm. that you were in the technical side of things, and then you moved into the uh, PR. Why? What attracted you to that position? Well, here we go then. Um, so I actually started in Hyundai in customer services. So my, my background, I left, left school, did my apprenticeship, um, discovered the world of, of motorcycles and females, and as I said, been in debt ever since, um, a, a number of different jobs, and then eventually got back into the into the trade, uh, working at kind of a local Nissan dealership. So I thought, do you know what? I, this, I, I, I want to do something different. I want to get involved with a manufacturer. Um, and Hyundai were just down the road from where I lived. Um, I kind of it took me a couple of times to get into the company, but eventually joined their customer services department with no real um, desire to stay with the company. It was kind of we'll get into the industry once you're in, I can then go off to the you know, likes of BMW, etc., whoever. Um, but there's something about the company that once you understand the culture, keeps you there. It's a really interesting place to work. So I moved on. I was only in customer services for about a year, I think. Um, and then moved into our technical team. So we were there for just over six years, um, sort of doing technical support to the dealer network, uh, as well as getting involved in some of the type approval stuff, um, bringing the new cars to, to, to market in the technical sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and then had an opportunity to work as in, within the product 
department um, as a product manager. So I had responsibilities for, at the time, it was Santa Fe, IX35, and I-100. So our, our sort of people carrier and, and, and van. Um, and that, that, was, it, that was an interesting one because that was a case of really getting involved with choosing a spe- specification for the cars coming into the UK, um, you know, what colours to be want, what engines to be want, what gearboxes, alloy wheels, and being interested in cars it is very helpful, but then you also develop your understanding of the whole industry because all of a sudden you are looking at things like, yeah, whilst I want to spec my car with 19-inch wheels, if I do that, the BIK is going to be horrific and we're not going to sell any. So then you start to <laughs> understand why people drive these cars around with horrible little wheels and wheel trips because whilst you might not like them, it appeals to them 100% because they don't pay much tax on the thing. Um, so you get a much better understanding. I was in there for a couple of years um, in product, um, and that's when I got involved with the fuel cell side of things. So I was approached by um, – I had a, had a random phone call one day from a, from a Korean. They said, I, I understand you deal with the iX35. as yes, my product manager. And kind of said, have you, have you ever heard of this car we've got called the iX35 fuel cell? And I was, I was aware of it um, from stuff that I'd done previously in the technical department. Mm-hmm. So I kind of went off to this strange meeting in a hotel room in London where they shared a bit more information about it. Um, and the next day I was in front of the, the GLA in London um, sort of talking to them about selling them a couple of, of hydrogen cars. And that was it. Kind of from that point on, I was then in the world of, uh, of, of hydrogen and fuel cells, which was, <laughs> was very, very interesting. Um, very eye-opening experience because you suddenly learn a lot more about how the – side of um, government works um, in the motor trade. So working with the Office of Low Emission Vehicles, uh, working with DFT, you know, the, the biz, all these different government departments trying to get this technology off the ground. Um, it was pulling your hair out at times, but also very, very interesting. Um, did that for uh, probably in there for a couple of years, kind of accomplished what I wanted to do in that role in the sense of without wanting to blow me on trumpet, it was kind of responsible for bringing this technology into the UK in terms of registering the first cars, selling the first cars, um, working with you know, Toyota, working with the guys there, because you have to work hand in hand with them at such an early stage. Mm-hmm. There's no point competing against each other. You're all in it to try and do the same thing. Yeah. Um, but we brought the cars to market and then it becomes more mainstream in the sense of that it was, it was good for me because I knew enough about the business in general that I could deal with most of the issues myself. Now the car's kind of out there, we sold the cars, um, the refueling infrastructure is slowly building up. It becomes more of a mainstream product. Um, but in the process of working with um, fuel cell, i had done a lot of PR work with our department. Mm. And there happened to be um, a vacancy at that time for product PR manager. Um, so I had a couple of chats with our, our head of PR. Uh, and eventually she said to me, well, how would you like to, to come across? Um, and it was a tough one moving away from the fuel cell because there is a big part of me that wants to make sure that's an ongoing success for us. Um, but, but giving the opportunity to, to go off and suddenly deal with what, on the outside is the very glitzy world of PR is a very attractive opportunity. Now I'm in there, it's bloody hard work. Um, <laughs> but it, but it's, it's hard work. Too many it's hotel fun. rooms for you. Is that what it is? <laughs> do, do you know what? It, it's, uh, I've become such a hotel room snob now. I'll, I'll walk into, a, I'll walk into a premier inn and just go, Oof. um, whereas <laughs> you, you saw, you saw the hotel we had on the Ionic launch. I know um, that was, uh, it, it, very, <laughs> it was very, very impressive. I didn't wipe my feet before I walked in. <laughs> no, you, you certainly get an appreciation for the finer things in life. I know that. Um, but it is it's, it's hard work, but it, it's enjoyable work. I know that. It, I, I wouldn't want to, to change it for the world now. That's it. I think I've uh, got my feet under the table now. Excellent. Right. Um, I think uh, it's time to move on to the quickfire questions, if you're okay mm. with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, then. <clears throat> I will start with, uh, and I, I know I've failed in the last couple of weeks, but... Uh, I shall try very hard to make no comments and just move on to the next question. Well, you, you, you will do about some of these, believe oh, me. No. Okay, okay. <laughs> oh. right, well, you've warned the listener, so that's fine. <laughs> okay, we'll start with the first one, which is, what currently excites you about the motoring world? 
the rate of technology development, I think, um, probably more so on the lines of the introduction of electrification of drivetrains. Mm-hmm. Um, it, again, kind of being absorbed into that world for quite a while, it, it changed your attitude um, towards vehicles. Uh, and I think there's the, the internal combustion engine is not dead, but seeing how technology is coming along to help it continue living is fantastic. And I think it's really interesting the diversity of, of, of tech that we're now getting um, and how it's really beginning to d- disrupt the old order of things. Um, so these companies that have traditionally been the figureheads of what they do are now really having to, to change their approach to things and they're starting to get overtaken by kind of small, smaller players. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a very interesting time for the industry now. Okay, so what currently worries you about the motoring world? Um, but not so much the motoring world, well, I don't know if it's the motoring world, but the incredibly poor standards of driving, riding and cycling in this country. I, I just... It frustrates the hell out of me how just the lack of courtesy between all road users at the moment and how I suppose a lot of it comes back to the the safety of modern cars these days, how everyone kind of sees the car as kind of their their own private tank. Mm. Um, And that that worries me quite a a great deal. And as we continue to go down the route of increasing safety standards, of increasing safety equipment, it's something that, yeah, I, I, I wonder how how we will resolve that going forward. And, and it does concern me. I, I think, this is me not talking, um, I think, talking of safety equipment that's coming in, I've been lucky enough to try some vehicles recently that have the blind spot warnings and the lane keeping assistance yeah. uh, and the adaptive cruise control. And I think more of that is better because of the the way that people don't appear to anticipate anything. Uh, whether they are walking, cycling, driving, all, yeah. all as you said, all three road users are appalling at the moment. There are there are vast swathes of them of us that are bad at it, and um, having these extra assistances is a good thing. Uh, in in my humble opinion, because I am always humble, it, it is. But I'll give you an example here. Now, my, I currently drive my car has got lane keep assist, it's got blind spot detection, and they are fantastic systems. <laughs> but as I said, I'm a keen motorcyclist. Um, one of the things I was always taught on my bike was you do your lifesavers. So you always do your check over your shoulder before you manoeuvre. Mm-hmm. A couple of, couple of months back, um, having a sort of a, a rare opportunity to take the bike out, going off for, for a ride, I'd done an overtake. Um, a legal speed limit in a, a suitable area. Um, but then suddenly realised I hadn't done my lifesaver because I've all become so, not reliant, but kind of lazy in the sense of the car is, the car tells you as if, as if there is anything there. So you don't need to do your lifesaver. Mm. You should still do it, but you, you almost don't yeah, have to because the car is already yeah. telling you. So it gets it changes your uh, attitude towards driving. So it it, it, can, it concerns me slightly. I think any, any safety system is is good, and you should never sort of say that it's not. But it just concerns me how it could also make a driver slightly lazy, a bit complacent. Yes, the complacent is probably a much better word of, way of phrasing that. Yeah, I, I I think uh, I haven't spent enough time behind the wheel with such systems for that to have crept in yet. Mm. But I, 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 I see where you come from. I can see how I could go down that route if i was doing lots of motorway miles particularly um and you feel that you're you know paying attention to your mirrors enough and that yeah no okay yeah no no excellent um what has been your favorite car to drive and why was uh, that a cayman gts um i thought oh, it was oh. it was fantastic um very confidence inspiring probably right up to the point where you go backwards into a tree um but it was just... Not that you have a reputation for... No, not for at all. I, I've, had, I've had no experience of that whatsoever. Um, but it, it was just it was just fantastic. Very confidence-inspiring. I thought very understated to look at as well for, for, for what it was. Um, absolutely loved it. If I won the lottery tomorrow, I'd buy one. And the kids could uh, get a cab. Ah, they can get in her car. It's, that's fine. She's, she's got one. <laughs> yeah, okay. So... Um, Right, the opposite of that then. What has been your least favourite car to drive and why was that? 
with the exception of my d- d- disastrous car purchase history, this this could be a controversial one actually. Um, a Honda Civic Type R, the latest one. Um, but I'll caveat that caveat that slightly, which is that it was on a track uh, with a, an instructor, and he was pushing me and pushing me and pushing me to drive faster and faster and faster. And I was like, hey, do you know what, mate? I don't want to go any faster. I'm quite happy driving at the speed I'm doing. It really kind of coloured my opinion and feeling with the car. Mm. Um, took it out to the roads around the circuit. Uh, just a you know, massively powerful car. It was well, what's good fun. But I don't know. I just it, it, it disappointed me, I think. But I blame that on the instructor. Okay. Um, what car would you like to own next? Um, I don't know like this one. Um, I quite fancy getting an MX-5, um, just to find out what everyone keeps going on about. Um, I've, I've, only, I've driven a couple, but only very, very short distances, but I quite fancy getting a kind of a Mark II MX-5 or something like that, just to play around with. Um, but it'll be trying to justify that to the other half, I think, could be a challenge. Yeah, yeah, without that lottery win. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's the favourite road for you to drive on? Oof, I've got two choices here. Um, I've got abroad, because I spend quite a bit of time over in Germany. Uh, any of the roads around the Nürburgring, not the ring itself, I've done that a couple of times, and I'm not going to go on about that now, but the roads around there are fantastic on a weekday. Don't bother doing it on the weekend, but the weekday, they are beautiful. Um, in the UK, I would say anywhere down the southwest, so particularly Dartmoor, Exmoor, places like that, where it's a real good mix of kind of fast and very tight and twisty roads as well. Mm-hmm. I, I like down there as well. Mm. Um, okay, the most pointless optional extra you've experienced? Wi-Fi in cars. Why do you need it? Um, it's... I, I, I just... I, I Yeah... <laughs> I can't really say what I really think because you'd have too many French police sirens on it. Um, <laughs> I, I just don't see the point of it. Why, why do you need Wi-Fi in a car? Um, your sat-nav system to tell you about traffic instances, things like that. Okay, yeah, I get that, but we do that already without the need for Wi-Fi. Um, I think it kind of it's almost like the safety side of things. We see enough people using phones, driving around. Do you really want to have something that potentially adds yet another level of distraction? Um, things should be outlawed don't agree with it get rid of it tomorrow I want it noted for the record I have said nothing on that answer <laughs> I want it noted okay then right um, who do you think uh, I should talk to next on this podcast I was thinking about this I, I, I've got a a blank space in my column of answers um, I reckon it'd be good for you to speak to someone like Steve Cropley who has someone who's got a, an extensive, massive experience in the trade, has a, a lot of very good relationships with some very influential and important people in the trade, but also appreciates the most simple, basic car all the way through to the, the most high specification, most powerful, most expensive sports car. Loves everything at you know, either extreme and everything in the middle as well. I think his his experiences. I, I've spoken to him a couple of times. Had some some good conversations. Um, I think it would be fantastic. I think your your podcast would probably go two three hours long. I reckon it's just the natural conversation <laughs> that would come out. Okay, excellent. And if, if if we can help get that one to happen, then let me know. All right. No, I I, I may well ask you to uh, introduce us, and that would be uh, awesome. Mm. That would be awesome. Okay, well, thank you very much for coming on here. I've uh, thank you for uh, well, you've helped. Awesome. Um, well, that no, no problem at all. You've helped. You've helped my ignorance be shifted slightly, uh, and you've helped answer some questions I've had and and help me get a better understanding of how it works for you guys on the other side, as it were. Um, mm. And from your your from the manufacturer's perspective, looking outwards rather than from us. All looking in, <laughs> you see what I mean. So it's been it's yeah. been nice. It's been nice to have that because uh, up to now I could have I've only made uh, surmises and, and assumptions, and uh, it's not always the wisest way to go. So um, if people want to uh, follow what you do or get in touch, um, what would be the best way to do that? 
Oh, well, me, I, I have on, on Twitter, um, at Robin Hales is my, uh, what is the, the term for, for that on Twitter? Is it, is it, I can't remember now. I was say handle, but that just makes me sound like some weird 70s American <laughs> <laughs> Well, Convoy is one of my favourite films. Um, <laughs> well, I'll have, yeah. uh, I'll have the link in the show notes um, that people Excellent. can click and um, uh, follow you on that. Uh, I would warn everyone that it's either very corporate or me moaning about family-related stuff. So it's not necessarily much exciting, but you never know. Occasionally, I'll, I'll chuck a little gem online if I can. Or maybe somebody will ask you about motorbikes. Uh, I, please. <laughs> right, well, thank you once again uh, for coming on. Uh, I've had a great time, uh, and I hope you've uh, enjoyed it as well. Yeah, likewise, definitely. Love, love, love having a chat. Okay, great. Speak to you soon. Yeah, you too. Thanks once again to Robin for coming on Rearview and chatting to me. I hope you found that as fascinating as I did and helping to educate us all a bit more on what the manufacturer does. If you want to suggest someone who you think we should talk to on this show, please do get in touch with me. Uh, If you use the hashtag RearviewPod, we'll be guaranteed to see it in Motoring Podcast Towers. If you'd like to get in touch with me directly, search for Crack Windscreen on Twitter. If you'd like to keep up to date with motoring news and opinions, go try out the sister show, which is the Motoring Podcast. And please don't forget to leave a review and rating on iTunes or however your podcast app lets you do such a thing. It really matters to the show and will make me feel very happy and may even force me to break out into a dance. There you go. I can't offer you more than that. So until next time, that was Robin Hales. I've been Andrew Clues and safe motoring. <laughs>